Disclaimer. The following podcast contains explicit language and adult content. The content may offend some listeners. Relax and don't be a hater. Hello. Welcome to a walk in the park podcast. (laughs) This is Riss. And this is Babs. And in our podcast, we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of wine, cake, laughter, friendship, success, families, fun, the extraordinary. We're happy you're listening. I can't stop laughing. <laughs> I love it. Let's just get this walk started, baby. Woo-woo. in the park podcast listeners this is babs and i'm here today with another babs minisode why well because riss mb and i are just very busy people at this time of year it's early may things are happening finals are happening riss is getting ready for hopefully her son graduating from high school pretty soon here mb is getting ready to graduate from the first part of his program at KSU. I've just got a lot of stuff going on personally. So much travel coming up, so much work going on. Ugh, it's a lot. But I am trying to release these podcast episodes somewhat regularly. So today, I'm just going to talk about what I think is important for you to know, and that's things about the climate. Yes, if you listen to any podcast episodes over the past year, you will know that I will frequently slip in some climate information. It's my current passion. Uh, I am thinking by fall or Q3 of 2025 that I am going to be wrapping up the intellectual property practice I have through Alexander Legal LLC and pivoting to environmental law because As much as people want to put their heads in that sand, as much as people want to ignore it, as much as people want to choose their own facts about climate change and the climate crisis because they don't want to have it affect, you know, things that are important to them or how they behave. And listen, I do not sit in judgment here. I drive a gas-guzzling GMC Yukon Denali. I live in a house with three HVAC systems. I have a pool. I live in Florida on a golf course, in a golf course community. Believe me, I am scared to evaluate my own carbon footprint. My husband and I are fortunate enough that we've planned to take a trip to Australia for my 50th birthday later this year. Air travel is apparently one of the worst things to be doing for the environment, so I will be looking into buying carbon offsets, which still aren't sufficient, but at least are better than nothing. And as Perhaps some of the listeners know, uh, since my 40th birthday, I've become, I have been an air travel snob and I only fly first class. I can think of maybe a half a dozen times in the past 10 years that I haven't flown first class. Uh, two of those flights, which was a return trip with people who weren't traveling first class and I flew in coach with them. Uh, before I upgraded my Amex to the Delta Amex that gives me a free first class companion certificate, I did want to use a companion certificate 
to travel coach with my friend when we were going to uh, 30A in Florida, and that from Atlanta is literally a 45-minute flight. Um, I did fly coach once on the way out to California because I was outraged by how much the first-class tickets cost for essentially what was a visit, not a vacation. And um, yeah, that only lasted one way. I flew first-class home. Uh, anyway, so that's four flights, five, five flights. And again, not trips. That's five legs of a flight that I can remember flying coach in the last 10 years. So anyway, point being, I don't sit in judgment of your choices, you know, glass house and all that. And from my climate leadership training that I did, uh, last month in April, I mean, It is good for everybody to know what the situation is, and it is wonderful when people can do something to try to help, but of course, the bigger issues are at a higher level than the individual. They're at the state, federal, international level, Um, and yeah, so it's all just a little bit much, but I had read or have been reading I guess I finished it. I can't remember when I finished it. But the climate book by Greta Thunberg, I think that's how you say her name, and she's that young Swedish uh, girl slash young woman. She's the same age as my oldest daughter. She's 20. And uh, she has been a climate activist for the past five years, really, uh, just to read from the back cover of her book, the climate book. Greta Thunberg was born in 2003. In August 2018, she started a school strike for the climate outside the Swedish parliament that has since spread all over the world. She's an activist in Fridays for the Future and has spoken at climate rallies across the globe, as well as at the World Economic Forum in Davos, before the U.S. Congress, and at the United Nations. So, I highly recommend this book to anybody that's willing to put in some mental energy and effort. It's a series of essays, so you can just sit down and read, you know, one or two at your leisure. It doesn't have to be a huge daily commitment. Uh, The information is, you know, pretty timely still, obviously here in 2023. Uh, The book was published in 2022, which of course means, you know, the authors were probably writing in 2021 and basing it off data from you know, hopefully no earlier than 2020 unless historical data is relevant. But the book is divided into parts. Part one is how climate works. Part two is how our planet is changing. Part three is how it affects us. Part four is what we've done about it. Part five is what we must do now. And there are essays within each um, part. And so I'm just going to share a little bit, because if you're listening, maybe you care. And if not, you can just shut this off. But this is the Babs Minisode, and I am all about climate. Okay, so part one, how climate works. Greta is telling us, listen to the science before it is too late. Uh, One of the essays is titled The Deep History of Carbon Dioxide by Peter Brannon, who is a science journalist and contributing writer at The Atlantic and author of The Ends of the World. And here are just a few quotes that I took note of just for my own future reference and education. So CO2 
also critically modulated the temperature of the entire planet and the chemistry of the entire ocean. When this chemistry goes awry, the living world is warped, the thermostat breaks, the oceans acidify, and things die. While CO2 perennially issues from volcanoes at a hundredth the rate of human emissions, and living organisms exchange it in a ceaseless frenzy at the Earth's surface, the planet is meanwhile constantly scrubbing it from the system at the same time, preventing climate catastrophe. Feedbacks that draw down CO2 serve to maintain a kind of planetary equilibrium. In the end Permian mass extinction, carbon dioxide was blasted out of Siberian volcanoes for thousands of years and nearly ended the project of complex life. All the normal guardrails in the carbon cycle buckled and failed in this, the single worst moment in the entire geologic record. The temperature soared by 10 degrees Celsius. In the aftermath, when the fever finally broke, one could travel the world without seeing a tree. The world's coral reefs have been replaced by bacterial slime. The fossil record went silent, and the planet took nearly 10 million years to pull itself back from oblivion, thanks in large part to burning fossil fuels. Every single mass extinction in Earth history is similarly marked by massive disruptions in the carbon cycle, the signals of which have been teased out of the rocks by geochemists. So that's a little bit about kind of the background, the history of CO2. It's all high level, but like I said, it's just interesting to think of. The next essay in part one is Our Evolutionary Impact by Beth Shapiro, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at University of California, Santa Cruz, and author of Life as We Made It. Ms. Shapiro writes, The coincidence and timing of megafaunal extinctions and the first appearance of people is recorded in the fossil records of every continent other than Africa. But coincidence does not necessarily prove causality. In Europe, Asia, and the Americas, human arrival and the extinctions of local megafauna occurred during periods of climate upheaval, leading to decades of debate about the relative culpability of these two forces in causing the megafaunal extinctions. Proof of culpability comes, however, from Australia, where the earliest extinctions tied to humans are recorded. So megafaunal are like those super large animals, you know, that don't exist anymore because we've hunted them or destroyed their habitats. And so they became extinct. The Australian and more recent island extinctions did not occur during periods of major climate change, and neither are extinctions recorded during more ancient climate events. Instead, these extinctions, like those on other continents, are the consequences of changes to the local habitat brought about by the appearance of people. As our ancestors transitioned from hunters to herders and from gatherers to farmers, they transformed the land on which they lived and the species on which they increasingly relied. Next essay, Civilization and Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, staff writer for The New Yorker and author most recently of Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Ms. Colbert writes, Researchers who have modeled human megafauna encounters have found that even if bands of hunters picked off a mammoth or a giant ground sloth only once a year or so, this would have been enough over the course of several centuries to drive such slow reproducing species over the brink. Our most dangerous weapon would prove to be modernity and its trusty sidekick, late capitalism. In the 20th century, human impacts began to increase not just linearly, but exponentially. The decades following the Second World War were a time of unprecedented growth in population on the one hand and consumption on the other. 
Between 1945 and 2000, the number of people in the world tripled. During the same period, water use quadrupled, the marine fish catch increased sevenfold, and fertilizer consumption rose tenfold. Most of the population growth occurred in the global south. Most of the consumption was driven by the U.S. and Europe. The Great Acceleration, as it's often called, radically transformed the planet. As the environmental historian J.R. McNeil has observed, this wasn't because people were doing anything new exactly, it's just that they were doing so much more of it. Quote, sometimes differences in quantity can become differences in quality, end quote, McNeil writes. People didn't start using fossil fuels in the 20th century. The Chinese were already burning in the Bronze Age, but for all intents and purposes, this is when the problem of climate change was invented. In 1900, cumulative carbon dioxide emissions totaled around 45 billion tons. By 2000, that figure was 1,000 gigatons, and since then it has horrifyingly increased to 1,900 gigatons. What proportion of the world's flora and fauna can survive in a rapidly warming world is one of the great questions, perhaps the great question of our time. Goodness, goodness, goodness. The science is as solid as it gets by Greta Thunberg. Shifting baseline syndrome, or generational amnesia, refers to the way we get used to new things and begin to see the world from a different perspective. An eight-lane motor highway junction would probably have been unimaginable to my great-grandparents, but for my generation, it is completely normal. The once unthinkable can very quickly become a natural and even irreplaceable part of our daily lives. And as we distance ourselves further and further from nature, the harder it becomes to remind ourselves that we are part of it. Population does matter, but it is not people who are causing emissions and depleting the earth. It is what some people do. It is some people's habits and behavior in combination with our economic structures that are causing the catastrophe. The climate and ecological crisis is a cumulative crisis that ultimately dates back to the colonial era and beyond. It is a crisis based on the idea that some people are worth more than others, and that they therefore have the right to steal other people's land, resources, future living conditions, even their lives. And this is still going on. It remains true that over 50% of all the anthropogenic, human-caused carbon dioxide ever emitted has been emitted since the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was founded, and since the UN held its 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. So they knew. The world knew. Limitations and restrictions are not exactly synonymous with neoliberalism or modern Western culture. Just look at how some parts of the world reacted to restrictions during the COVID-19 pandemic. A big divider today is whether to include equity and historical emissions in in discussions of the actions needed to tackle the environmental crisis. Since those figures have been negotiated out of our international frameworks, it is no doubt tempting to ignore them as they will make the message appear far bleaker. We are built for another reality altogether, and our brain finds it hard to react to threats that aren't immediate and sudden for many of us. Threats like the climate and ecological crisis, threats that we can't clearly see because they are too complex, too slow-moving, too far away. I will say, so I totally do subscribe to that. Uh, I think that's accurate, and I think that's why humans, you know, are the way they are. I certainly Admit, I'm that way on many issues. There are many issues I'm not following in the world because they are too complex or they are too far away. (sighs) The Discovery of Climate Change by Michael Oppenheimer. And this is where in my notes, I guess I stopped uh, 
jotting down who they are, but let me see if I can just go to the back here. I know they, they tell me somewhere. They tell me somewhere who they are. That's how I knew. And Michael Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, excuse me, he's an important one. So let's see. Michael Oppenheimer is an atmospheric scientist at Princeton University, and he is Princeton University's professor of geosciences and international affairs and a longtime IPCC author. Savante Argenius, a Swedish chemist, evinced no concern when in 1896 he published his now famous prediction that by releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere through burning coal, humankind would gradually warm Earth by several degrees. His findings were almost universally ignored until the 1950s when a handful of scientists pointed out this warning might have catastrophic consequences. Okay, people, 1896, 1950s. Pay close attention to how long we've known about this. All right, back to Mr. Oppenheimer. By the late 1970s, a scientific consensus had emerged on how much Earth might warm once carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere doubled. The gases that make up Earth's atmosphere, primarily nitrogen and oxygen, are by and large transparent to sunlight. As a result, most sunlight passes through the atmosphere and warms Earth's surface. As Earth warms, it sheds heat back into space in the form of infrared radiation. However, water vapor and some other gases that are present in our atmosphere in trace amounts, particularly carbon dioxide, absorb or trap much of this infrared radiation, sending some of it back towards the surface and increasing Earth's temperatures. This process had remained stable for thousands of years until the onset of widespread industrialization during the 19th century. The fossil fuels that came to power industrial society, coal, oil, and natural gas, are remnants of carbon-based plant matter buried millions of years ago. Fossil fuel combustion releases tens of billions of tons of carbon dioxide every year. Farming, including raising cattle, has also resulted in rising emissions of methane and nitrous oxide, greenhouse gases that exert an even greater warming effect per molecule than carbon dioxide. The drilling and transport of natural gas has leaked yet more methane into the air. Rampant deforestation and other land use changes have become another large source of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. As a result of these various human influences, carbon dioxide levels in the air are now 50% higher than in pre-industrial times. And then there's the impact of feedback loops. Warming has increased evaporation from the ocean surface, putting more of the greenhouse gas water vapor in the air, which has in turn accelerated the warming. Arctic sea ice has melted, allowing more sunlight to be absorbed at the ocean surface rather than reflected back into space by the ice, speeding warming even more. Clouds both trap heat and reflect sunlight, and the net effect of changes in cloudiness due to warming is yet another feedback that makes Earth warmer. Taken together, these feedbacks are causing the Earth to heat up three times as fast as would be the case otherwise. What makes atmospheric buildup of carbon dioxide a special concern is that this excess can be permanently removed from the environment, rather from the atmosphere, by a very, very slow, centuries-long process of dissolving in the oceans. So how to build carbon sinks? In 1988, the IPCC was formed through the United Nations, which harnessed the efforts of thousands of scientists across the globe to assess the climate issue and come up with solutions. 1988, people, and here we are 35 years later in 2023. Okay, in 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The U.S. Congress ratified the agreement and Bill Clinton's election to the presidency that same year seemed to bode well for climate action. But when the new president tried to implement an energy tax as a first mandatory measure to restrain emissions, he encountered strong opposition in Congress and withdrew his proposal. 
Taxes are the third rail of U.S. politics, and to this day, carbon taxes face a difficult path to adoption. The United States never ratified the Kyoto Protocol, and in 2001, newly elected President George W. Bush withdrew the U.S.'s initial signature of the document. Science lost the battle because of political influence, because of political influence of corporations that produce fossil fuels as well as those of firms that heavily consume them. Many of these firms and their various trade associations had established effective disinformation campaigns involving so-called think tanks, while some politicians from regions that produce fossil fuels promoted distortions and outright lies about the science. In a situation where private interests were creating a public miasma of falsehoods and deception, it was all too easy for the general public to discount the risks. UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, a former research chemist, respected the scientific warnings and also driven by her determination to break the power of the coal mining unions, lent her support in 1989 to the concept of negotiations, the UN Framework Convention. Angela Merkel was also a former chemist. When the U.S. stepped back from leadership on the climate issue, the European Union, led by the U.K. and Germany, as well as the Netherlands and its Scandinavian member states, partly filled the void and pushed for global action to address the problem. The Paris Agreement was in some ways a landmark, but it has proven only modestly effective as China and more recently India has fast-rising emissions and an economy that still relies heavily on coal. Nevertheless, China has ample reasons to press ahead to keep pressing ahead with its climate commitments. It urgently needs to reduce air pollution and stands to gain massively from selling solar photovoltaic modules, wind generators, and electric cars to the rest of the world. Am I reading too fast? I know I read fast. I hope you're gathering some of this information and banking it away. Why Didn't They Ask by Naomi Oreskes. Ms. Oreskes is Professor of the History of Science and Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. And I actually know from reading Scientific American that she's a frequent contributor there as well. Not sure why that wasn't mentioned here. Scientists, journalists, and activists have documented the many ways the fossil fuel industry spread disinformation about climate change to prevent action. Much of this work has focused on the industry goliath ExxonMobil, In the 1970s and 80s, Exxon's own scientists informed them of the threat of climate change caused by their company's products. However, from the 1990s onwards, the company promoted a public message of high scientific uncertainty, insisting that policy action was at best premature and perhaps unnecessary. ExxonMobil was a keynote in a network, sometimes called the Carbon Combustion Complex, that included coal corporations, automobile manufacturers, aluminum producers, and others who profited from cheap fossil fuel energy. The fossil fuel industry worked in tandem with network, with a network of politically conservative libertarian and neoliberal think tanks who echoed and amplified the message of climate doubt. In 2006, the UK Royal Society, one of the world's oldest and most venerable scientific honor societies, identified 39 organizations funded by ExxonMobil that denied or misrepresented the state of climate science. The fossil fuel industry and its allies acted indirectly to prevent climate action by poisoning the well of public debate, but they also acted directly when government action appeared imminent. Most economists now recognize climate change as a market failure, but only a few understand it as part of the larger pattern of environmental destruction that scientists have labeled the Great Acceleration. Capitalism as currently practiced has imperiled the existence of millions of planetary species as well as the health and well-being of billions of humans. It also threatens the prosperity that it was intended to create. The climate crisis, as shown 
has shown that the unrestrained pursuit of self-interest does not serve the common good. It is shown in the words of Joseph Stiglitz that Adam Smith's invisible hand, the idea that free markets lead to efficiency as if consciously guided, is invisible because it is not there. No one wants to admit to being duped by disinformation or blinded by a myth, and people in positions of privilege rarely examine the basis for that privilege. Perhaps most deeply, the climate crisis breaks the promise of progress, and so even today, many people who are not necessarily climate change deniers resist meaningful action, refuse to acknowledge just how broken our economic systems are, and deny how much damage industry disinformation has done. All right, last essay in part one, people, and that will be a wrap. Tipping Points and Feedback Loops by Johan Rockström, who is the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and professor at Potsdam University. We triggered the Anthropocene some 70 years ago when our fossil fuel-driven industrialized world went truly global, causing multiple hockey sticks of rising human pressures. The Great Acceleration is a fact manifested in an accelerated rise in greenhouse gas emissions, fertilizer consumption, water use, marine fish catching, and terrestrial biosphere degradation, to name just a few. The scientific community must now explore whether we are at risk of destabilizing the entire Earth system, where feedbacks shift from cooling to dampening to warming and self-reinforcing, which could culminate in an irreversible drift of the entire planet away from the stable interglacial state of the planet, the Holocene that we have benefited from since the emergence of human civilization some 10,000 years ago, and still completely depend on. While the Holocene is the state of the planet, an interglacial with two permanent ice caps in the Arctic and Antarctica, the Anthropocene so far is only a trajectory, a movement away from the Holocene state and not yet a new state. But the risk is that there is limited hope. At 1.1 degrees Celsius of global warming, as of 2021, we have exceeded the warmest global mean surface temperature, GMST, on Earth since we left the last ice age. We have built our economies, our societies, and our civilizations on two assumptions about the natural world. First, that changes happen in an incremental, linear way, allowing for regret and simple repair. Second, that the biosphere has essentially infinite space and capacity to absorb human impacts, our waste and cope with our extraction of resources, our consumption. The science of resilience and complex systems debunks both of these assumptions. Earth's biophysical systems, from ice sheets to forests, ultimately determine how habitable the planet is. Ice sheets and forests cool and hold the planet within a narrow temperature range, but only up to a certain point. Past this threshold in the system, be it a coral reef, a frozen tundra, or a temperate forest, will irreversibly tip over from one state to a qualitatively different state. This change is propelled by self-perpetuating feedback loops, so the change can continue even if the pressure, global warming, has stopped. Therefore, the system would remain tipped even if the background climate falls below, back below the threshold. It does not generally happen overnight. It may take decades or centuries before a system finds a new stable state. The fact that crossing tipping points does not have to be abrupt is one of the great challenges we face. If we cross tipping points now, or within the next few decades, their full impact might only become apparent, unstoppable, after hundreds or even thousands of years. Okay. Side note, you really can't say things like thousands of years because then humans are just going to divert to the, that doesn't affect me, that's too far away. Too many things could change between now and then. It is absolutely fundamental to understand the interactions between systems on Earth and Earth system feedbacks in order to assess the risks of pushing the planet too far. Interactions reinforce changes. 
For example, when warmer oceans accelerate ice melt, a feedback shift is triggered when the white ice surface, which usually reflects 80 to 90% of the incoming heat from the sun back to space, crosses an albedo or reflectivity threshold. Because the ice surface gets darker when it melts and becomes flowing liquid water. At a certain point, the system feedback shifts from negative, net cooling, to positive, net warming, and the whole system moves toward a new, ice-free equilibrium as a result of the feedback shift. At 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, the Arctic is warming two to three times faster, accelerating ice melt from the Greenland ice sheet and the melting of the Arctic sea ice. This, in turn, slows down the ocean's circulation of heat, the AMOC, which in turn impacts the monsoon system over South America, which can partly explain the rising frequency of droughts over the Amazon rainforest and the subsequent increased severity of fires and abrupt pulses of CO2 back into the atmosphere, which intensifies the warming. Furthermore, the slowdown of the Atlantic heat conveyor leads to more warm surface waters being stuck in the Southern Ocean, which can explain the accelerated melt of the West Antarctica ice sheet. Today, our best understanding is that even at 1.5 degrees Celsius, and certainly between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, we are taking enormous risks. And let me just do a quick little uh, look of the AMOC for you. That's A-M-O-C. And it is the Atlantic Merodional Overturning Circulation, which is the large system of ocean currents that can carry warm water from the tropics northwards into the North Atlantic. And then finally, let's see, is that the last? We'll just hear finally from, to round out part one, sorry, is Greta. This is the biggest story in the world. Some say that we shouldn't involve morality because it can induce feelings of guilt, and guilt is not the ideal way to create change. But what else can we do? How do we address this uncomfortable subject without upsetting anyone? How can we talk about an existential human crisis created by inequality, the exploitation of workers in nature, land theft, genocide, and overconsumption without any mention of morality? 